If you know me, you know that I much prefer preaching out of a specific text of Scripture and expounding on it. We did 18 weeks through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this, this summer and this fall. But you know, there are portions of our Scripture that read quite a bit more practically, uh, that read almost like a how-to sort of thing. And so we're doing this four-week series on the relationships that matter to us, and we're calling this series These Four Walls. And so last week we talked about friendship, and I decided that uh, to, to sort of fit the wisdom literature theme or motif that every week I would, I would title the sermon with a how-to. How-to. Uh, and, and, and I say tongue-in-cheek uh, because we all know that the how-to sermons are only half the story. Uh, that, that you could listen to any how-to sermon and think, oh, thanks, oh, wow, is that all I need to do? And really, the, the Bible, I think, acknowledges this sort of way that we grapple with knowledge. We look for knowledge to be neatly compiled and streamlined into bite-sized bits of wisdom. And so you have Proverbs that are these sayings, these compiled wisdom of the community, and they come to us in sayings. And so we had today... Proverbs saying, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And we're like, great, is that all I need to do? But if you carry on in the wisdom literature, you go on into Ecclesiastes and you realize, wow, there's a little bit more complexity to this, isn't there? I had an Old Testament professor in seminary who made the joke. He said, Proverbs says, do these things and life will work out this way. Ecclesiastes says, we did and it didn't. And so the Bible actually makes, rooms, uh, makes room for our questions. And so it, the, the way we're going to structure these talks in these, in these few weeks is to spend the first bit of the sermon really practically and saying, okay, here's some things you can do. And then to reach a point in the sermon and say, but here's the problem. Here's the complexity of the situation. Here's the reality of our lives. And here's the, the trouble with just saying it that way. And then eventually we're going to make a beeline to where Jesus and the gospel and to say, what does Jesus have to say about all of this? And in fact, the Old Testament wisdom literature is designed to make us look forward to where Jesus, Jesus who is the wisdom of God personified. So this is why we stand when we hear the gospel reading, because it's a reminder to us that even when we read our Bibles, we don't pull magic verses out of here and there and say, oh, yep, this is all I need to do. We read the Bible as a drama that's unfolding in which Jesus is the central story. Jesus is the main character. And so even as we find ourselves, we start with the proverb and we start in the Old Testament, but we're going to make our way towards Jesus and say, and what does Jesus do with this wisdom that has come down to us. Does that make sense? So this week is how to find a good spouse. (laughs) I know, nervous laughter. Now some of you are thinking, okay, come on, maybe we should go get that, get Sunday brunch now because I'm already married. Now hang on guys. Next week's going to be how to have a good marriage and the week after that's going to be how to be a good parent. So you don't want everybody else leaving the room, right? So, So here's why I want all of us to hear it. Does anyone know someone who's single? Yes. Next week I'll say, does anyone know someone who's married? Yes. So being part of a larger church family means, okay, we're going to hear things that may have particular resonances for different people in our church family, but it affects us too, and and we want to hear this. So, all right, I asked a few people this morning if this was okay to do, and they said, it'll be awkward, but you should do it, so here goes. 
It's, it's, it's Nikki Hickenbotham's fault. <laughs> How many people here, if you want to, if you're willing to raise your hand, you're single? Come on now. Yeah! All right, now turn around, meet some people around you, swap phone numbers. Now listen, (laughs) I want to say this before we start. Sometimes the message inadvertently that we hear from church is being single is only only like being half a Christian. And I want to say to you that that's not true, okay? That the Bible has plenty to say to affirm you in your singleness. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, has a whole lot to say about how in your singleness you can serve God with less, uh, you know, sort of uh, encumberments, (laughs) distractions, uh, troubles. But Paul uses some stronger words than that. Um, so, so I want to affirm you in that, that it's not as if, oh, your, your sanctification or your journey with God is, is on pause until you get married. That's not true. But I'm also, so I want to I say that clearly up front, but I'm also aware that some of you may not feel like you have the gift of singleness. And this singleness that you find yourself in is not a state that you wish to stay in. So it is part of the scripture's message to say, well, let us guide you in finding a good spouse. So here we go. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, come on, come on. Proverbs 18, 22, this is our Old Testament reading. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, gaining favor from the Lord. Now, as our text, as our main text this morning, we're going to do three practical sort of bits about the dating part. And we're going to look at Genesis 24. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 24. It takes, it's going to take a little bit of biblical imagination, holy imagination to look at this text and say, how do we get something from this? Because our situations are very different. And what you'll recognize right away here in this Genesis 24 scene is Abraham is instructing his servant to go and find a wife for his son. Now, I doubt that any of you have a parent who's asking one of their employees or, you know, someone to say, hey, would you go and find a wife for my son or find a spouse for my daughter? But this is, this is the context of their day. So verse seven, the Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's household and from my family's land, who spoke with me and gave me his word saying, I will give this land to your descendants. He will send his messenger in front of you, and you will find a wife for my son there. This is Abraham talking to his servant. You skip ahead to verse 12. And the servant says, Lord God of my master Abraham, make something good happen to me today and be loyal to my master Abraham. Now, I went to a school where Oral Roberts sort of made popular in the 20th century the phrase, something good is going to happen to you. And for a lot of us, it did because we found spouses at ORU. But, <laughs> but the master says, okay, I'm on this mission. Lord, make something good happen for me today. The first thing I want to say to, to all of us who are maybe in this journey or in this season of life, and it's going to be a very trite thing. So here's a warning. It's this phrase, trust the Lord. I recognize how trite that sounds. And I recognize how cheap that is for someone who's married to say, oh yeah, great, good for you, Glenn. Trust the Lord. You got married at 23. I did. But trust the Lord is maybe one of the most profound things at the heart of what this journey of being a Christian is all about, isn't it? I I think deep down inside, it's worth reflecting and asking ourselves if we believe that we are really on our own in life or if we really are in the, in the hands of a good father. 
So many of the decisions we make, if we stop and we reflect, why, do, why am I acting like this? Why am I grasping? Why am I anxious? Why am I dealing with so much anxiety? Could it be that somewhere deep down inside, we don't really believe that we're in the hands of a good father? That there is a good shepherd leading us? That maybe it is the case that you could be doing, making the same decisions, taking the same risks to meet people and all of that, but two people could be doing the same things from to- two totally different postures of the heart. You could be looking to meet someone at a small group or at a rock climbing thing or whatever. You could be looking and and one person could be from this place of, you know, ultimately I'm trusting my future to the Lord. And the other could be saying, man, if I don't make this happen, no one will. And so right from out of the gate here, we've got to say, I think there's something we have to wrestle with deep in our hearts to say, who is the master of our destinies? Who is the one that is the Lord over us? Who is the shepherd? Christ alone, cornerstone. We were singing it this morning. Who is the one that we really ultimately trust? The text kind of moves on and the servant is saying here, verse 13, he says, I'll stand here by the spring while the daughters of men of the city come out to draw water. And when I say to a young woman, hand me your water jar so I can drink, and she says to me, drink, and I will give your camels water too, may she be the one that you've selected for my servant Isaac. I mean, again, listen, I, I, I'm not sure that, that we want to take this exact, you know, exactly as it is and say, okay, so I'm going to do a test. You know, I'm going to go into Starbucks, and if I pay for her drink and she says thanks, then she, you know... She's the one. In verse 15, but even before he finished speaking, Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, was coming out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very beautiful, old enough to be married, and hadn't known a man intimately. This is his unofficial checklist that he made at a youth camp one day, one year. She went down to the spring, filled her water jar, and came back up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Give me a little sip of water from your jar. And she said, Drink, sir. Then she quickly lowered the water jar from her hands and gave him some water to drink. And when she finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw some water for your camels too. And the heavens opened up and this angelic voice started singing, "Ah, ah, ah." Anyway, sorry. She emptied her water jar quickly into the watering trough, ran to the well again to draw water, and drew water for all the camels. And the man stood gazing at her, wondering silently if the Lord had made his trip successful or not. (laughs) The second thing I want to say is you have to take a step. There are a lot of Christian young people, and I hear this a lot, who think that trusting the Lord means being passive. And this is really true for lots of decisions in life, isn't it? Not just in finding a spouse, but in in finding a job or in stepping out into a career or all of this stuff. Uh, There is this confusion that to trust the Lord means to do nothing. But I want you to see that here's Abraham and his servant, and they have this whole posture of saying, look, God's going to be the one who does it. God's going to be the one who does it. And yet they go. In fact, he goes on a very long journey. He puts himself in the right situation. He goes to, and, and for them, in their context, putting himself in the right situation was being in this, this right land where they could find you know, people from the right family and all that, which had different importance in the Old Testament than it does today. Okay, so allow me to navigate around some of these trickier bits. 
But here he is put, taking a step, putting himself in the right situation. Now, I know. Here's the question right away in your minds. Well, whose job is it to take the step? Is it the girls or is it the guys? And in our day, we sort of want to say, okay, listen, man, if I want to ask him out, I'll ask him out. You know, there's no, you know, and listen, I know there's a way of looking at this and saying, oh, the Bible is, you've got to remember there's cultural lenses and it is a patriarchal society and all that. That's true. And yet, it's time and time again that in the stories of Scripture, yes, in their own day, but in the stories of Scripture, it's always the man going to find the woman. Even our proverb was, he who finds a wife. Now, again, you could dismiss this and say, but that's cultural and that's, you know, patriarchal society and all. That's true. But, you know, I do think that, that maybe we are missing something here in our day. That a woman is a prize to be treasured and cherished. And that maybe there's something here that, that all of us, all of us, all of you as women, sorry, I can't say us, all, <laughs> that all of you as women can recover in saying, you know, I want to recognize that I am worth seeking out, that I am worth being pursued, that I am worth being treasured and cherished. I am worth someone going on a long journey to find. And maybe there's something of this, however you tackle this text culturally and contextually, and all, maybe there's something in here worth recovering of saying, a woman should see herself as the prize. And, and it is good for a guy to learn to take the strength of initiation and to take the risk on himself. Too many fellas today are not willing to endure the possible risk of a rejection. And so we don't ask because we're like, well, I just don't know. I don't, I don't want to be rejected. And so I, you know, I just, I want this to be easy. And I, if they would just make it clear that they already like me, then I'll ask them out, you know. And I think there is something that's a necessary part of, and forgive me if this sounds old fashioned, but I think, this is, I, this is my opinion, I'm submitting it to you, but I think there is something that is part of a man becoming a man where you learn to shoulder the risk of something on your own shoulders and not to place it on hers. To say, I'm going to carry this, and if I get rejected, then it's me that bears that weight and not her. Does that make sense? Again, that may be old school. I submit it to you, test it out. This says Glenn, not the Lord. Okay. But in the writings in the Old Testament, there's even a little bit of a challenge to women not necessarily being passive because you got this whole book of Ruth where Ruth meets him in the field. She's got this very creatively cunning mother-in-law who says, come on, girl, put some perfume on and dress up a little bit. It's true. And she goes and she finds him and she lays herself at his feet, which may or may not be a euphemism for something else. I'm just saying there's all kinds of hidden stuff in this story. And there's a woman that's, that's sort of saying, I'm here. So there is, even within the Bible itself, there is this dialogue which says, yes, you can come and seek the woman out, but women, you don't have to just sort of sit there. Anyway, I know. Okay, all right. Take a step. Now, I want to say one quick little aside here about steps. Because some of you have taken a step and you've gone out, you've done a few, you know, you've had coffee a couple times, you've had dinner, you've got, you know, there's a movie and all this thing. There's something about steps. Steps, not quite these. These don't really work for my illustration because they're really deep steps. But most steps are not ideal for staying on. 
Most steps are not ideal for staying on because there's not a lot of depth. So steps are meant to either go up or down. And there are a lot of times that we find in relationships where we've sort of been hanging out on one step for a long time. Do you know what that creates in a relationship? It creates insecurity. Just as a step is sort of this precarious kind of place, and you're like, so are we moving toward marriage, or are we just kind of hanging out? And, and I think at each progression of a relationship, there's got to be this, okay, let's take a step. Now let's take the next step. Now, to be clear, I don't mean this the way our, our culture means this often, which is take the next step as in physically, or like, you know, oh, let's take the next step. We've been holding hands and now let's, you know, or whatever. I don't, I don't mean that. Neither do I mean it as in, oh, let's take the next step. Let's move in together, test this. I don't mean that. I just mean in, in every stage of getting to know another person, there has to be this escalating of commitment. And honestly, commitment precedes intimacy. So you let commitment kind of lead the way. When I first uh, was you know, kind of hanging out with Holly in college and, and we were in groups and stuff, there was this one moment where I said, very risky, I said, I, I, I really like you and I really enjoy spending time with you. And then I said, but I don't know where this is going yet, but I would like to keep hanging out with you. That was enough to say, all right, let's take the next step. But if you hang out on a step too long, it gets precarious. And you've, you've all been in relationships that are endlessly ambiguous. And you're like, I don't know what we are, but we sort of go out once a week. And, and it's, it, it's okay to say, okay, so what is this? And let commitment lead the intimacy part of it until you finally get to the commitment of marriage. Okay. Genesis, move on in the text. Verse 22. As soon as the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold ring, weighing half a shekel. Not sure how much that is, but but it's got to be precious. And two gold bracelets for her arms, weighing ten shekels. And he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? This is the beginning of the betrothal process. And he begins to have this conversation with her dad. And, and the, you know, in their culture, that was how the process kind of took the next step. So number three here is to make the leap. Now, this is for those of you that have been dating someone for a little while. And you're saying, okay, I think this is right. I think this is we're going to get married. I feel pretty good about this. We've met each other's families. We've all this stuff, you know. And you're just waiting for God to speak. <laughs> Can I say that sometimes what we need is not more clarity, but more courage? That, that love is always a risk. And what we want the Spirit of God to do is eliminate risk. But there is no way that God eliminates risk because love always involves risks. In fact, you remember that C.S. Lewis quote where he says, the only place that is safe from the dangers and risks of love outside of heaven is hell. In other words, on earth, in this life, to love at all is to risk. It is to make yourself vulnerable. It is to to. Take this leap. Make a leap. Holly and I actually broke up. We lose count. Sometimes we say it's three times. Other times if we count this other time, it was really four times. 
And we'll tell you the whole story sometime. I, I asked her this week if she wanted to come and, and share the story with me, but I thought that would take the whole sermon. So, um, but, but when we met, I was two years ahead of her in school. I was a junior. She was a freshman. And um, I had sort of, when we met, it was, it was it, I don't know if it's because I'm sort of this hopeless romantic or whatever, but I kind of was more ready to commit And she'd come from a small town in Iowa where there weren't a lot of Christian guys. All of a sudden, she shows up at Oral Roberts University where there's thousands of Christian guys, and they're all really, really ridiculously good-looking, you know? (laughs) And And so for her, it was like, I like you, but how can I be sure? I mean, I just got here, and you know? And then to add pressure to that, our school just with the students, at least at the time, had this very high-pressure thing that, we, that everybody sort of felt that they needed a word from God to confirm every decision. So you had, you know, single friends, consulting single friends about how you know when it's time to mar- marry is not a good idea. <laughs> I just want to say that, like, the blessing of being in a church family is you've got all these wisdom of, look around at these wonderful older couples who've been married a while, who are raising children, have raised children, and go and talk with them. Sit with Larry and Kim, ask Jim and Martha, say, hey, whoa, whoa, hi, talk me through this. Because single friends counseling single friends is the blind leading the blind. I mean, let's just be honest. You know? Nobody knows what it feels like, but everybody thinks they know. And so we had friends saying, well, listen, if you doubt at all, I, just, I, don't, I don't think God's in that. <laughs> if you doubt, as if, you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's a reason cold feet has, is a cliche, you know. So that combined with it to, to sort of put her in a bit of a spiral periodically every time we were about to take the next step in terms of saying, okay. Yeah. And then for me, I had this thing where I had never dated anybody before, so I was, hadn't learned yet to lead. Do you know what I mean? So we'd break up. And I'd be just right, always just right there, like ready, like any time. Like, like, oh, you want to break up? Sure, I, it's great. You're, you're, you know, like, I, lo- I love you anyway, you know, or whatever. Which, like, in my mind sounded a lot more meaningful than it probably came across, you know. And it wasn't until the summer of 2000 when, when I was invited to come out here and be an apprentice to Ross Parsley and begin work at New Life Church and all of that, that I said, okay... I'm sensing that we're at this precarious place in the relationship and I'm not going to do long distance unless we're going to take this next step as in like we're going to get engaged shortly. But if you're not ready to do it, that's fine. But I think we should just say that it's over then. And so she said, well, I, I just I can't, I don't know. And, I, you know. and people are saying God should speak and I haven't heard God. And, you know. and so we said, okay, let's, let's not. And it wasn't until I sort of said, well, I am going here. I would love for you to journey with me, but if you can't, I'm going to go here anyway. And I think there is something in that, that that has to happen. And for me, that's what needed to take place. I needed to find a little bit more confidence in a direction. Instead of saying, oh, well, I'll just wait. So it was when I moved here in the summer of 2000 that all of a sudden the reality began to set in for Holly. And she took a few months of silence. We didn't have any communication. And, and, and I said, babe, how should I say this? I was asking her last night. I was like, how should I say this? I mean, should I say it as like, you finally realized what a great guy I was? And like, how, how do you want me to tell this part of the story? You know? <laughs> and she said, yeah, no, that's true. 
So I, I think it took a little bit of a coming to your senses moment to say, I don't want to live without this other person. And can you ever be fully, fully, fully sure? No. Will you ever eliminate all the risks in life? No. But you've got to take a leap. I've talked to some of you in here about this illustration of the marathon race. Most people who run a marathon have never run a marathon prior to the race day. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not like the week before the marathon you go out and run 26.2 and then you say, okay, now I know I can do it. No, you don't do it. You train by running three, then five, then more, and, and, you, and, you, and probably the most you do is what, 10, 12, maybe 15, and you get up there and you're like, I think I'm going to do this. And then you run the long one. Marriage is this marathon that you've never, for most of us, you've never really run before. And so how do you know it? Is you test it with these next steps in the relationship. And you say, okay, yep, I'll run five, I'll run ten. And then you eventually say, well, I'm going to make the leap now. So you're listening to this and you say, okay, Glenn, that's how to. That's great. Thanks. That's cute. Very clever. You know, trust the Lord, take a step, make the leap. Ooh, lovely. (laughs) So simple. And you're saying, you're saying, look, it's not really been like that for me. That hasn't been my experience. Or I did that and it ended in a bad marriage and she cheated on me or he cheated on me and we're not together anymore and the marriage has ended. And this, you can't, this, this, there's more complexity to this than what you're saying. You're right. There absolutely is. And some of you are saying, I've done all these things I've been doing, and it just doesn't work. Or maybe if we get gut level on us, you say, I'm hearing you say this, But there's one difference between Rebecca, whom Abraham's servant finds, and me. I'm not this perfect person. I've had this. I've done this. I've been through this. I've had these relationships. I've struggled with these problems. So, you know, yeah, cute story in Genesis about finding this perfect woman at the well, but I'm not that person. It's for that reason I wanted our gospel text to be Jesus meeting another woman at at a well. See, throughout the scripture, meetings at a well are very symbolic moments. They signify divine encounters. There's Hagar who encounters God at the well. They also signify clash of cultures. But they also signify most often this change of destiny, this destiny moment for a man and for a woman. We read one story of it in Genesis 24, but there's more. So when you get to John's gospel and you get to this moment where Jesus meets a woman at the well, the reader or the listener is primed to be saying, wait, what? Is this going to be a divine encounter? Is this going to be a clash of cultures because she's Samaritan and he's Jewish? Or is this going to be a romantic thing? What is this going to be about? And actually you see bits of all three in there, don't you? You see this woman kind of saying these things to Jesus like she's thinking, okay, is this... You know, who is this guy from Jerusalem? And then Jesus begins to change the subject and he asks her about her life and all of a sudden she realizes she can't hide the brokenness of her past and the brokenness of her story from this man. And so then she says, okay, I see this meeting at the well is going to be one of those cultural clash moments. So let's talk about where we should worship. And Jesus says, okay, I'll deal with that. But listen, there's something else I want you to see. I who speak to you am he. This is this Messiah moment. See, the woman at the well is the exact opposite of Rebecca. Rebecca seems to be the 
the fairy tale person. And this woman, as Jesus points out, has been married five times before and is now with a man that's not her husband. This woman is the opposite of the good woman the wisdom literature tells us to look for. This woman is a woman who should be disqualified from ever being known and being loved. And in the end, when we talk about dating or marriage, all of these relationships, friendships, isn't it at the core, aren't we at the core of it talking about this deep longing to be known and to be loved? We are. And this woman, it's her nightmare because now she's being known, but she's being known in all of her ugliness and mistakes. And probably not much of this was her fault because in the first century, a woman couldn't divorce a man. It was a man who put away with the woman. And so she comes across as being a woman who was not good enough for any man to want to keep. And here is the best man of all, Jesus the most perfect man of all. And she's thinking, I'm in. I'm done. This is over. How could anything good come of this? Really, when you say, what is the wisdom of God about the love that we're longing for? You find it in Jesus speaking to this woman. There's really three strikes against her. Number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's a Samaritan. And number three, she's a, woman, a Samaritan woman of loose morals. There is no reason Jesus should be talking to her and his disciples know it. And yet the Son of God doesn't shy away from any one of our failures. The Son of God does not run away from any bit of our story. The Son of God doesn't turn an eye away from parts of us that all of a sudden are brought into the light and you say oh you know that about me jesus never says oh jesus says hi i'm here if you'd ask me for a drink i'll give you what you're really looking for jesus says listen i am the fountain i am the living water that truly quenches thirst I am the living water that truly quenches your thirst. Deep down inside, you're longing to be known and to be loved, but you're afraid that if you are known, the more you are known, the less you'll be loved. Isn't that the fear in all of dating, even in marriage? This bleeds into our talk for next week. The frightening thing about the first few years of marriage is you realize there is no escaping this other person. And you're knowing all of their flaws and they're knowing all of yours and then it brings out these insecurities like, are they still going to love me? Because we're so used to the process being like this. The more I'm known, the less I'm loved. The more I'm known, the less I'm loved. But with Jesus, the more you're known, the more you're loved. And so this woman goes back to her town and says the strangest thing. She says, come meet a man who told me everything I've done. And you get the sense that she's saying this as a good thing. And you're like, woman, you weren't so excited about all the things you've done. Why now? Is it because Jesus can take the source of our greatest shame and turn it to the place of deepest healing? Is it because Jesus can take the source of our greatest shame and turn it into the place of our deepest healing? 
Is it because Jesus can say, listen, you are longing to be known even in your failure, even in your brokenness, even in your addictions, even in your problems, even in your idiosyncrasies, even in your dysfunctions, even in your strangeness, even in all the stuff that has made others reject you, you're still longing for someone to see you and call you and speak to you. And Jesus has come to do that. So this woman leaves saying, come meet a man who's told me everything I've done. Could he be the Messiah? Church, this morning as we close, I want us to begin to quietly where we are, just begin to ask the Lord. Single, married, divorced, wherever you are in life, to say, Jesus, I want to be fully known by you. I don't want to put up these walls and say, oh God, don't come into this part of my life. I don't want to block the messes and pretend they're not there. Sundays, after all, are for church faces, right? The most beautiful thing about the gospel is when you really believe, when the grace of God really overwhelms you to where you really believe that you can be fully known and fully loved. Every night when I put my kids to bed, whichever one I've got that night, I pray over them and I say, Lord, I pray that they would grow to know your love and I pray that they would grow to trust your love. That's the greatest gift that any human being could ever experience. To grow to know the love of God in Christ Jesus and to grow to trust that love.